Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest today is Brian Smith, managing editor of the website Law and Liberty, which engages discourses on the classical liberal tradition of law and political thought and how it shapes a society of free and responsible persons. Mr. Smith is going to help us understand what he feels is the most beneficial power dynamic between government and religious institutions, give us a brief history lesson on the formations of those viewpoints, and also give his side of the story about a few public dust-ups he's waded into recently. But first, I asked Mr. Smith to give us a little bit of his background. My name is Brian Smith. I'm the managing editor of Law and Liberty, which is a project of Liberty Fund, an Indianapolis-based nonprofit uh, that's focused on great books and educating about liberty. I uh, completed my doctoral studies at Georgetown University and taught political theory and international relations at Montclair State University for about a decade prior to starting my job in 2018. So today we're going to talk about uh, Christianity and government or governing, at least in your view. Can you give a brief history of Christianity and the different views on how people should be governed? So I, I think the first most important text to think about here or series of texts are Augustine's reflections on government. And you know, he proposed the fairly famous notion that there there are two cities. You know, there's there's the city of God and the city of man. And a great deal of the discussion that has flowed out of this has to do with which one should dominate and how they ought to relate to one another. I think Augustine's idea was that the two were separate, that uh, the city of man ought to strive to become more godly, but that one should never expect secular rule to be uh, completely identical with the will of the church. And so while, while this was not a idea like we would know now today of, of sort of separation of church and state or a sort of clear hierarchy between them, I think Augustine's idea was quite simply that the, that the church would have a, a sort of guiding function over the state, but, but could not actually exercise the power of the sword. I think since then, the natural tendency for most of the history of government, basically from you know, Rome's adoption of Christianity as its public religion through to the wars of religion, was for government to adopt a relationship toward the church of what can I do to use the church to control my citizens? What can I, what legitimacy can I gain from the church? So I think a lot of the history of Christianity and government has been one of conflict because civic rulers have a tendency to want to use any any religion they can inside of their borders to help legitimate the state. Even rulers that believe deeply in in the Christian faith 
had a tendency to be corrupted by the lures of power. And so I, I think one way to look at the history of Christianity and the state is that it's, it's a tale of conflict um, rather than harmony. In, in efforts to sort of perfectly harmonize the city of God with the city of man have historically resulted in a great deal of disaster for both states and the church. I've heard some people tell the history of Western civilization when they talk about the church versus the state. Sometimes you'll hear, you know, the Catholic Church, or it was the only church prior to the Reformation. It became so powerful, of course, it became corrupt also because of that. But it did serve as a limit to state powers and in a way it was kind of good for liberty, or at least it was helping that evolution towards more recognizing of individual rights a little bit, or at least that there was um, no one should have absolute power. What, what do you say to that? So I think there's absolutely a great deal of truth to both elements of that. Well, let me focus on the second part first. One of the professors I got to know a little bit while I was at Georgetown was, was Father Jim Shaw. In many of his books, he made the argument that while it was never a completely reliable check on government power, one of the things that modern political thinkers and, and scholars have forgotten is that the idea of hell and of, of eternity and there being eternal judgment, either heaven or hell, is a real limit to what even an absolute ruler might want to do. So to the degree a society has, a, has an animating faith in, in Christianity, to the degree a ruler is personally convicted of their own sinfulness, and pursues holiness and 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 and, and a relationship with God as as best as they can. Uh, obviously, in you know prior to the Reformation, that would look very different than in sort of medieval Christendom. I think there's there's a real truth to this that the the rulers who genuinely did believe, even the ones who were you know sort of spectacular sinners. I think there's a strong argument to be made that many of these people were restrained by their faith. They could have been worse when you compare it to places in the world that had no sort of touch of Christian faith. In many cases, they were worse. It's also undeniably true that, that Christianity is the origin point for most societies coming to grips with the idea of human dignity. Now, I think most Christians believe in the idea of natural law uh, or, or common grace, the idea that there are certain moral truths that we cannot not know. The thing is, though, it, it's relatively easy to see those truths, and, you know, where we sort of have, a, have a, um, a conscience that feels when your personal rights are being violated or, or your sensibility is being violated. But to generalize that out through the whole of society requires something something more than just our moral intuitions. It requires a, an example of what it means to love one's neighbor. It requires the example of sacrificial love that, that Jesus offers of death on the cross. So many political theorists have made the argument that, that it was that moment of Jesus's sacrifice that begins to 
spread this notion that human beings have have dignity, have certain duties toward one another that go beyond the sort of minimal we human beings ought to respect property, they ought to respect life kind of notion you could get from natural law. To the other question, I think one of the great problems that I, I was thinking about as I was answering your first question is that political power, like I said, has a tendency to attempt to use religion for its own ends. And as the official state church almost everywhere in the Western world, up to the 1500s in most places, the entanglement of the church in government created many problems. It's not to say that there weren't many, 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 you could even argue that the overwhelming majority of uh, state functionaries, bureaucrats were deeply faithful believers. But the practice of corruption, I'd argue, got baked into many of these institutions. The pursuit of sort of Machiavellian power politics at the highest level in both the church and in various states, I think became something that demanded a reformation. And I think there's, there, there, there's a great problem that any official church inside of a state, whether it's the Catholic church or, or a Protestant sect or an Orthodox church, they all face this issue that religion has a tendency to be co-opted by power. And it's, it's rarely the case that the truth wins out over power under these circumstances. And I think worse still for the, the idea of Christendom and the prevalence of Christianity in states that, that have done this. I think uh, the, the, the 19th century thinker Alexei de Tocqueville was right when he said that when a church sort of meddles in politics, when their preferred politics fail, the reputation of the church itself and its truth fails. And that's a lesson that I think we, we continually find ourselves having to relearn, uh, particularly in, in recent years as arguments about this have resurfaced, about the idea that we ought to have a more Christian government have resurfaced. Okay, so I want to ask a question that may be retreading the ground you just went over, but I kind of want to clarify it and see what you say. So I've heard it said, I think all my life, that where Christianity went wrong was Constantine, that time period when it became legal and when it became advantageous, politically advantageous to be a Christian, at least in name. I mean, for several reasons. The persecution stopped, and so you didn't have a way to test for martyrs, but also the church mm-hmm. got entangled with power and people Romans were just becoming Christians because it became the official religion at some point. And you hear this from all kinds of people that generally don't agree on a lot of things. And I think of like uh, maybe purist or rural conservatives when it comes to Christianity, but also to progressives. They have a nostalgic look for the days before Constantine. So, so what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Is that oversimplifying things or... There were a lot of things that came out of this entanglement that were, I think, great boons for Western civilization. I mean, the state support of these great universities that I, I don't know that that would have happened without the church being this sort of guiding influence. But I, but I do think that from the, one of the fundamental insights of Christianity, probably the only empirically verifiable thing about Christianity is that human beings are sinners. 
that we are born to trouble and we continually will face temptations to do the things that we know in our hearts we ought not to do. And that, I think, is the great peril of, of official religion. Now, it's not to say that there haven't been sort of well-run states with an official state church. It's just that within those states, there, there was always and will always be a greater temptation to cronyism, a greater temptation to have an outward faith that's completely cynical. And my take as a, as a Christian convert has always been that I, I've never understood why the church would want to create a situation where that was such a strong incentive. Because as you alluded to, I mean, the old adage that the church grows under persecution, mm-hmm. it's, it, it is completely true, you know, that authentic, deeply engaged churches tend to be where if you were, if you were a materialist, you, you, the great surprise of the church is that, well, it flourishes where you, you would think objectively the, the conditions were worst in places where there's official or unofficial persecution in places where materialism or hedonism thrives. Um, there the church also thrives. And, and these are all because the, the things that lead people to God are, are often the product of despairing of life's other options. You know, whether those other options are sort of, you know, the seeking of honor, the seeking of wealth, the seeking of, of like hedonistic satisfaction all those are things that, like, unfortunately, when you have a state church, well, those, those goods not only have luster, but they're granted a, a veneer of legitimacy from the church all too often, if that makes any sense. What got us to the point of the American Revolution where that the whole allure of the divine right of kings, for example, um, or that you couldn't go against the government because it had been ordained by God, how did we get to the point where it was almost a show of faith to defy the king or the parliament? I think there's a longer lineage to this than people often give it credit. I mean, when you look at the different colonies that, that became the... the the rebelling colonies, you know, whether it was the the Massachusetts Bay Colony founded almost exclusively by uh, dissenting um, non-conforming Puritans who wanted to flee the Church of England, or more southern colonies, which were founded by sort of like freebooting, wealth-seeking types who brought the Church of England with them. What you find are a, a bunch of people who were already living out for a very long time an independent existence from the crown and its agencies. Only as the late 17, early, early 1700s rolled around, did you start to see the crown establishing much firmer control over these colonies. And I, I think in, in most cases, up and down the, the eastern seaboard, all these different colonies uh, were loyal subjects of the crown. They They fought the French and Indian Wars, they uh, were willing subjects. But after the French and Indian War, you had 
all the crises of taxation and this feeling of unjust arbitrary government floating among the colonies. There, there are a lot of debates about what idea streams built into that sensibility that started to crystallize from, like, say, the 1750s and 60s onward to a revolutionary fervor by the late um, 1770s. I think the best way to put it is that you had these ideas of sort of common law constitutionalism, that there are certain political and legal liberties that Englishmen are entitled to. There's the sort of burgeoning natural rights sensibility and talk that, that, that you heard a lot about. Um, in, in if you read John Locke or any of the pamphlets that are sort of around Thomas Paine, you, you get this sense that rights are really, really, really important. But the, the part that I think fell out of a lot of official American histories of this, or like you know, semi-official histories of this, in the 20th century at least, was the religious aspect. You know, you, you, you could read entire histories of the American Revolution and not know that there, there were colonists who carried flags that said, no king but King Jesus. Hmm. And if you go back to the language that reformed religious people were using of, of natural law and natural rights, what you see is a, is a conception of human beings as born for Republican government, under whom you know, they can live under a king, but kings do not have absolute rights. And so the divine right of kings, by, I, I think, in, in, most, in most American colonist minds, by the 1670s, 1680s, I don't think it was even, even, a, even a major force in colonial thought. Sometimes I think the arguments were already a dead letter in England by that point. If, if you read some of the pamphlets that went back and forth. But by the time the, the revolution starts being permanent, the argument is about what rights does Parliament, you know, what, 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 what rights do the king and Parliament have over us? You know, can, can they impose taxation without representation and why? And another aspect of, of, of the sort of religious backdrop to this is, if you look at many of the church polities that sprang up all around uh, the colonies, you have churches that were self-governing entities. Where you know, if you think of the, the the archetype for this, which is you know the people talk about the most, which is which is the Puritan township. Well, these were churches and townships that were governed in an entirely republican frame with very deep egalitarianism in, in some ways from very early on. And that's the element that I think is often missing from these debates. But to say that, as, as some books, I mean, I, I just reviewed a book about this, as some people will argue, you know, that, that the only one of these traditions mattered. I think that's, that's where you fall into problems, um, is in sort of neglecting the, the other traditions that led into the, the American founding. Well, while we're on that topic, I guess you've been involved in a couple of controversies lately. I think that means that you're probably doing the right thing somehow, if, if people are paying attention to you and getting mad. Yeah. So let's talk about objectivism. I want to jump to that. And you might want to explain to folks what objectivism is. And I, I will say that at least 
Ayn Rand folks and the libertarians, I guess there's different distinctions, and maybe you want to make those distinctions. And uh, one thing I find is interesting is, you know, these days with, I guess, the, the creeping of progressivism and new liberalism, not old-timey liberalism, the conservatives and libertarians and objectivists have somewhat become allies, somewhat, but there's still division in those ranks. So do you want to talk about all that and also how you got into a little bit of a tangle? And a lot of this has so, to do with American history and how you yeah. tell it. So objectivism is the philosophy of Ayn Rand, who was a, a Russian immigrant to the United States. She's primarily known for several novels, probably the most famous of which is um, Atlas Shrugged, which is a giant doorstop of a novel. Um, <laughs> but really, it's it's a story with a thesis. To boil it down to one of her you know, sort of favorite formulations, human beings are reasoning beings, and they ought to be selfish beings. We can rationally understand that we are rights-bearing beings who have a right to life and property, but not to ask much or anything of anyone else. So we have a duty to be selfish. It's a very peculiar philosophy. It's it's sort of, um, I think the stereotype is that this is, you know, that, that her works are really, really popular among uh, angry teenagers yeah. and that most people eventually stop taking them seriously. But she had a real phase. I, I want to say, you know, her sort of, Apex of prominence was probably somewhere in the 1980s. You know, her most famous devotee was Alan Green. You know, was was I think Alan Greenspan, former chairman of the of the Federal Reserve. But I think there's a broad spectrum of reasons people come to be classical liberals or, or libertarians, and and objectivists were always a very small number of these people. Uh, partly, I think, because of the sort of sheer starkness of their theory of the human person and of morality. You know, where, you know, you could sort of look to the opposite end of the classic liberal to libertarian spectrum. And, you know, where classy, where, where, where Randians, generally speaking, call themselves anarcho-capitalists. They, they believe in essentially no government. Everything can be uh, voluntarily arranged. Um, you could have entirely voluntary cities where uh, the law, in essence, was self-enforcing. You, know, you could contrast that to what I, I take often to be the the default way in which a, a large number of people presented the American founding was as a classical liberal founding. And I think there there are certain truths to this, but in in many classical liberal sort of stories about the American founding, you know, the the Declaration presents a of independence presents a theory of of the state that is uh, minimal, it is focused on securing rights, it recognizes there are, there are essential human uh, rights, but also s certain minimal duties that we have toward one another. Generally speaking, with classical liberalism, you're, you're talking about a constitution devoted, you know, you're talking about a state that has a constitution devoted to preserving liberty and largely restricts itself to certain essential duties of minimally at possibly education people debate that certainly national defense and and security usually public provision of roads and things like that and then there's a broad spectrum of thinkers in between what i've outlined as sort of like minimal state classical liberals to randians and sort of as you go down that road 
um, generally speaking, what you find is thinkers growing less tolerant toward religion, um, more focused on the idea that we can sort of get by on our own reason and our own abilities. You'll find statements like there is no such thing as society. The further you go down toward libertarianism and objectivism, they're only sort of bundles of individuals. I think, you know, you, you also will find an increasing devotion to economic thinking above all other forms of thinking and an abhorrence at talking about morality as something binding on a community or even one's own conduct. And so one of the things that I think is really interesting about the ongoing debate right now in conservative circles is this idea that like we're, uh, that, that many conservatives now have that we're finally going to decisively reject everything about classical liberalism and libertarianism. My old um, doctoral mentor uh, wrote a very famous book uh, called Why Liberalism Failed. It's Patrick Devine. In this argument, he claims that liberalism has these sort of internal tendencies that are ultimately self-defeating, that we, by pursuing individual autonomy and by living within a conception of, you know, me, 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 we found ourselves sort of depleting the social capital upon which the United States was founded. By believing in liberalism more than religion and community, we've undermined the very things that gave belief in, in property rights and in sort of free speech rights in all the sort of things that we would, you know, take for granted as as essentially American rights. All these things have sort of self-undermined. Now, the book I mentioned reviewing is by C. Bradley Thompson, um, America's Revolutionary Mind. So C. Bradley Thompson's uh, America, America's Revolutionary Mind makes the argument that Americans were created, in essence, by a, an attachment to John Locke's thought, that almost all of the leading intellectuals, even the churchmen of the era, were Lockeans in their thinking, and that they had, they had sort of adopted the mantle of Enlightenment rationality. And... The book is an example of what happens when you slight one of the major streams of thought and try to understand what happened in the American Revolution in the years leading up to it. So the book starts out in this really interesting, promising way. You know, he sets up this thing that I thought was really sensible sounding. He was saying that his method was a to write a new moral history that takes ideas seriously as a motive for action, which is something I've thought for a long time ought to happen more in scholarship about uh, political events. And so I went into this book being, being very excited by the possibility. Uh, and then about 10 pages in, I realized what the argument was and hit this wall with it. Um, I was reading the book because I'd been commissioned to do it by the Claremont Review of Books. And my review ultimately argued that you know, you can't really understand the founding without coming to grips with the religious inspiration for, you know, of at least some of the people who were involved. Now, one of the things that I think is true is that many people have read the Declaration of Independence as a very Lockean document. And, and, and there's a lot to that. There are elements of it that uh, mirror the logic of John Locke's second treatise uh, almost section by section. And so, so to deny Locke's presence in the thinking of Thomas Jefferson and others is, is foolish. 
But, you know, the, the Declaration also has multiple references to God. And, and also, if I can break in, there's all kinds of sermons and pamphlets from the New England area where these are from preachers, and they've woven in not only Scripture, but, you know, Locke himself. It wasn't separated in their minds at all. Exactly. It's this idea that you can... And, and, and this is something that I think really dogmatic uh, followers of isms have a tendency to do in general. Uh, this isn't just a libertarian or an objectivist thing. It's an everyone thing. Um, you know, people have a tendency of, of monomaniacally reading their pet idea into everything. And one of the things that I think happens when you when you look at the American founding and see just rights talk, and you're focused on this idea that oh, this this is the birth of a of the first real free government, and then you read something like uh, Federalist One, which talks about where Hamilton says that like, we're going to build a government based on reflection and choice, not accident and force. You can build a kind of narrative of, you know, this is the liberalism that we ought to live with, you know, we can be sort of autonomous, choosing rational beings. And that kind of interpretation strips some of the life out of this stuff, because no one picked up, I'm not convinced anyone really at the founding picked up John Locke and read him like a systematic philosopher apart from a handful of, you know, actual scholars, mm-hmm. um, you know, teaching at the various colonial colleges. I think what most people did are exactly the kinds of things you talked about. They eclectically pulled bits and pieces from John Locke and, and wove it into a narrative about, you know, what happens when kings go amok from scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a volume that, um, that my employer, Liberty Fund, um, Paravimes that, that they produced called Political Sermons of the American Founding. Um, it's, it's a two-volume set edited by um, a scholar named Ellis Sandoz, and, and it's 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 a great thing. It, I mean, I, I dug into it quite a bit to uh, write this review of, of his book, and it's, it's but it's, it's a great volume because it it shows you how deeply scriptural these arguments for revolution really were. While John Locke shows up now and again, he's often just sort of like proof texted. You know, he's he's thrown in there as a well, as as the late learned Mister Locke has said, blah 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 blah, and then they'll go right back to reasoning from somewhere in Samuel or or pick your your favorite passage that relates to um, man's dignity from Scripture. I mean, it, it it's really interesting that ideology has the t- this tendency of narrowing what's relevant in the past. And I think that's a case of what happened in this book. You know, so my, my review tried to highlight that I was only given like 1600 words. So it was, and then I, I think I started with almost 3000 written and just kept on cutting to get it down mm-hmm. in the next issue. Um, after my, my review, which was called the Lockean American mind appeared, I, I received a extremely irate letter from um, from the author Brad Thompson. Um, after I'd calmed down, I wrote a reply of about a thousand words. The interesting thing to me about it is that one of the well, one of the questions I often ask myself when I'm reading a book like this is, what is it attempting to do in relation to the contemporary debate? I think a lot of people ask that. You know, like if an author, like you open a book 
that has something to do with politics and government. You sort of ask, like, what side are they on or what are they trying to show? And in Thompson's case, it's fairly clear that what he objects to is this conservative discourse of reinvigorating discussions of the common good, pointing toward religion as a source of of anything good in politics. And so, you know, he was trying it in trying to build a founding defensible or you know, a founding in defense of a very stark kind of libertarianism. You know, he has to cut out all these things. So even even when even when political sermons appear in the text, they're sort of divorced from and shorn from all the things that made them actually important to their their auditors. You know, I I clipped somewhere I think in my reply that you know never have so many political sermons been read to so little benefit to the reader. So I guess the controversy I waded into was surprising to me because you know right now what you expect are books like Pat Deneen's that follow on this criticism of liberalism. Uh, and I, I was sort of surprised to see a book get published right now that looks to John Locke and says, no, no, this is the, liber- this is the liberalism that we ought to defend. You know, when, when it strikes me that if you're going to be going about defending liberalism uh, of a certain sort, it makes a lot more sense to look to thinkers like Edmund Burke or Alexis de Tocqueville or Adams and Hamilton and company directly instead of to go to this fairly abstract uh, philosopher who didn't, after the revolution itself, have a whole lot of influence on America. So you were involved, I guess, in another controversy, if I've read everything correctly. It involves a, th- a theory called integralism. Am I saying that correctly? I, I, I think most people say integralism. Okay. So not long after I started at Law and Liberty, it was early 2018, I started seeing arguments about this, you know, by, by Catholic authors about sort of new old understanding of how the church and state ought to relate to one another. It was surprising to me at first. They, I, mean, I didn't think such people made these arguments. But, um, but for, for definition's sake, let me read what one of the current uh, most prominent exponents of this, uh, Father Edmund Waldstein, says about it. He says, Catholic integralism is a tradition of thought that rejects the liberal separation of politics from concern with the end of human life, holding that political rule must order man to his final goal. Since, however, man has both a temporal and an eternal end, integralism holds that there are two powers that must rule him, a temporal power and a spiritual power, and since man's temporal end is subordinated to his eternal end, the temporal power must be subordinated to the spiritual power. Um, I pulled this from a brief thing he has on a website that he's one of the editors of called Integralism in Three Sentences on a site called The Josiahs. And so I, I, you know, put simply, you know, integralism as as its major exponents now presented is the idea that the right place for people to live is within states ordered by the Catholic Church, states that are, that, that, that sort of accept their 
ultimate subordination to the Pope and Catholicism and that are ordered by Catholic social teaching. These aren't wing nuts. These, I mean, these are like educated people. These are serious people. Like, right. So where I found this, and I think that this relates to it somewhat, I stumbled across this, this series of arguments, I think largely initially through the writings of uh, Professor Adrian Vermeule, is the, let me get this right, I think it's the Tyler Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard Law School. He and a number of other authors have been advancing these arguments, I want to say for maybe the last four or five years in a big way. And, and it's taken on, I think, greater and greater life in intellectual circles in New York and, and D.C. And so I... Having read a bunch of these different arguments um, and seeing my former mentor, Pat Deneen, sort of talk around this stuff for a while, I, I wrote a short essay just sort of asking the question, well, what does the return of throne and altar politics really look like? Conceptually, like, I, I, I find myself at the outset kind of baffled by it, like, you know, what not so much by the practicality of it, because political theorists talk about practicality, you know, talk about highly impractical things that they believe society ought to be ordered around all the time. I guess my question was, you know, sort of what, what do you do with the fact of diverse religious attachments inside of a state? What do you do with that? Mm -hmm. What do you do with the fact that almost every state has diverse religious attachments? And how do you, you know, propose going about creating an order like this? And what I noticed was many of the people who make these arguments most loudly online have this affinity for thinkers like um, the German uh, legal philosopher Carl Schmitt. Schmitt, there's no way of really sugarcoating it, was a Nazi um, and made fairly stark arguments about how politics is irreducibly about friends and enemies essentially that politics is like war. And so I, I tried to start to think through in an essay form, what do you make of all this stuff? And, and, you know, what, what do people, what do they really want? Um, so, well, I can't say I've, I've been like a major participant in this because I wrote, I wrote one or two essays around this. Um, none of which were really heavily, heavily engaged with. But I, but our, my website, Law and Liberty, has been running debates about this and many, many essays in relation to this um, for the last two years. So in a way, I've I've been fairly involved with thinking about this and creating a space for talking about it uh, since I made this move into sort of online opinion and journalism. So the accusation. It almost seems like they're trying to go back to when the church controlled the state. Is that correct, for, first of all? Well, so the way that they would put it, I, I'm trying to be as fair as I can to these guys. Mm -hmm. And, and what, it, what they want to argue is that there are spheres of competency within which the church and state respectively operate. And so you look to the sort of middle in, you know, like the, 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 the end of the first sentence I read, you know, political rule must order a man to his final goal. And, you know, it, it, it's funny, like, I read this paragraph and, like, as a fairly conservative, you know, Presbyterian, like, 
there are parts of it that I'm not I'm not opposed to in the abstract. Like, you know, ought, you know, I ask myself, ought politics to consider human beings as having a, a supernatural end? Sure. Ought there to be recognized temporal and spiritual power that are that ought to be seen as different? Absolutely. But my, I, I guess my problem is like, even if I were a Catholic, my concerns have, have, have to do with this idea, which is often raised in a very abstract, very highly, you know, sort of um, high level theological, philosophical way in integralist writings of, you know, they'll talk a lot about the state must, you know, exists to further the common good just as the church exists to lead men to the highest good, God. One of the things that I think I'm struck by over and over again is the degree to which integralists sort of assume that the best way to reach an understanding of the common good is to, is to have highly authority, authoritarian rule. Many of them have this, this bizarre, from what I can tell, affection for monarchies. Many of them are, like, have have a deep affection for um, the sort of monarchs in exile, whether they're Habsburgs or, or the, um, the descendants of Louis and in, in, in France, which I, I find kind of baffling, but, but, but what that tells me is like, so, so what you're saying is not that the common good is something that we need to ar- arrive at through some sort of Republican mechanism. So we're not talking about, arriving at the common good by voting or by um, by sort of the arrived at sense of a community and its deliberations amongst itself. Like, you know, you imagine like a t- township, like people meeting and talking and like sort of having a sense that, that settles out of the way they live together. What you're really saying, if you're talking about a regime like this, is that there will be people in the state whose who's sort of theological and political enlightenment allows them to know what the common good is. And, and with, a, with a pretty high degree of specificity, like we'll know what, what the right banking policy is, what the right immigration policy is, and we'll be guided by Catholic, Catholic social teaching in doing it. But, but the ambiguity of this stuff is hard to escape. That never works out. I mean... And then maybe this is my simple mind way of looking at things, but if I could have a dictator, if I could live under a dictator who agreed with everything that I said, I still wouldn't want him because one, you know, we change our minds over time based on experience or what have you. But also he will probably get assassinated or just die of old age and who's going to replace him? And he, that next person has all the power to do what uh, yeah. they want because we gave it to them thinking he was going to do the right thing. I'm just surprised anybody couldn't look at history and see that that's inevitably going to happen when you grant. Uh, well, yeah. And so I, I guess I, I'm often struck by there's this disconnect between the mechanisms of the state. We are of, of like of, of the mechanisms of any state that, that, that they might be pointing toward and, and the, the very high aspirations they're talking about. So, you know, if, if you follow these people at all on Twitter you know what? What you see is a lot of admiration for for the you know for Franco's dictatorship. You see a lot of this sort of wish fulfillment. I remember being in one discussion where um, one of the participants made the argument that you know 
um, what really ought to be able to happen is for a bishop to be able to basically go to the magistrate or, you know, or, or you know, um, in the United States, I guess, district attorney and tell them to issue a warrant because somebody had engaged in some kind of public immorality. I, I hear these things. And it's like, OK, like you sure you could build this. You could build a new state state of apparatus under a general, you know, sort of law that reintroduced, uh, you know, pornography bans or, um, or, you know, various kinds of laws about when, when banks could run. And you could imagine a state where this happens, but talking about the common good without thinking about how the community arrives at it is, I think, a fairly dangerous proposition, because then you're saying that, you know, the, 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 sort of abstract and general documents that, you know, church councils have produced over the years can somehow lead us directly into policies that will guide a community. And in a way, like that, that opens up a second line of critique in my mind, which is, so one of the essays we published, what was it, November of, of 2018, uh, by one of our authors who's engaged most deeply with this, a guy named James Patterson, he makes the argument that, you know, integralism actually is kind of an admission of despair. What you're saying is that, well, I can't persuade people anymore to come to mass. I can't persuade anybody to abandon gay marriage or pick any number of the cultural touch points people who are very conservative Catholics who might be upset about. Wouldn't it just be nicer to have the state on my side so I don't have to evangelize? <laughs> That's sort of a cheap shot. I mean, but but there is this element of, you know, you'll often hear arguments, you know, from them, from Thomas Aquinas, for instance, you know, with this emphasis on the idea that the law can be, can be and is a moral teacher. And I, and again, like, I, I, I read statements like that. The law can be a moral teacher. Yeah. You, you know, what we inscribe in law has a, a sort of teaching effect for people, but it also ought not to be something that that we imagine will change minds necessarily uh, with, with like, with any degree of constancy. And, and I guess this may go back to some of where we talked about at the beginning. You know, I, I wonder if you, you can say all you want, that people ought to live in confessional states. And as, as most of these people are Catholic, they're going to say, oh yes, the ideal state for a human being to live within is, is a Catholic confessional state. Okay. Well, that doesn't get us beyond all the propensities to status seek and go along to gain positions that people have always engaged in. And I think one of the geniuses of, of the American founding was it's was that the, most of the people who were present at the creation were well aware of the temptation to to turn to power, to settle things, to create an outcome that, that you want without respect for other human beings. That when power is available to settle things, we inevitably find ourselves tempted to use it. And I, I suspect that's one of the reasons why, why that even in places where there were initially established churches, you know, all the colonies tend to, you know, the colonies becoming states moved eventually away from them. It is better to have honest disagreement and affiliation with faith than it is to have 
universally ad ad adhered to, at least publicly faith, but internal cynicism among a large percentage of the population. If you don't mind, though, talk about your organization, Law and Liberty. So Law and Liberty is a site, as, as, as the name, um, I, I think, I hope suggests, <laughs> uh, dedicated to thinking about what it means to be free and responsible people uh, living in a constitutional republic. So a lot, of our, a lot of our essays cover ongoing issues in constitutional law or ongoing, you know, on, ongoing uh, both current events and philosophical arguments about the nature of liberty. Uh, but we do a lot of other things. We run movie reviews. We run uh, reviews of novels, um, books in history, philosophy, literature, all the sorts of things that we think are important for free and responsible persons to think deeply about uh, the situation we live within. You know, I I was a professor for, for a decade, and it's, it's an incredibly interesting uh, job to have after that, because you know I'm I went from having these conversations at a basic level with students to having them now online with you know anybody that comes. It's, it's a really interesting time to be engaged in arguments about ideas vaguely on uh, on the right, and um, we're a project of uh, Liberty Fund, which is a a nonprofit dedicated to thinking about many of these issues. Uh, but great books more broadly. And we host conferences and other websites um, and have about 600 books in print, I believe, all of which are great editions and immensely discounted. Um, if you wanted to buy, you know, the collected works of Adam Smith, we're the very best place to buy them, for instance. And that's, that's the organization. Um, and I'm really excited to be a part of all of it. That's great. Hey, thank you for your time. Thank you. If you want to learn more about issues relating to today's topics, visit Law and Liberty's website, which is lawliberty.org. And if you're still in a mood for religious controversies, you might check out the That to Which We Are Tethered episodes of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, where we've so far talked about progressive Christianity, Richard Rohr, euthanasia, socialism, idolatry, and other lighthearted topics. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.